October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode number 19, The War Between the States. Last time, we talked about the organization of the General Conference, the highest layer of the church structure, which could move around pastors and church assets on a strategic level, at least in theory. This was the final piece in the puzzle of organization, and James White's hard-won case to organize the Adventist Church couldn't have come at a more opportune time, because we are now smack dab in the middle of the Civil War. Since we have a lot of listeners from outside these United States, we should probably stop and explain the American Civil War for a minute. This war was the most formative experience in American history. Whereas the Revolutionary War determined that America should exist, the Civil War decided what kind of nation America would be. It was a war between North and South, but also a war over two competing visions. The South championed individual states' sovereignty to decide their future and their policies, while the North wanted a stronger federal government to bring national unity. In calling it the United States, you could say that the North wanted more emphasis on united and the South wanted more emphasis on states. Hence, the North became known as the Union and the South as the Confederates, that is, a confederation of sovereign states. In the mind of these southern states, they could enter into a union with the other states or walk away and form their own nation as they saw fit. The northern states saw national unity as more important than what any individual state wanted. Obviously, this was something that had to be resolved. It was that define-the-relationship moment that we all dread. Hey there, southern states, we've been dating for 70 years now. What do you say we take the next step? And then the South looks painfully awkward and says, yeah, but I really like my independence, you know? I just don't think I'm ready for that. But we made a promise. Does that mean nothing to you? And after that, the metaphor really just becomes disturbing, so let's leave it at that. The issue of who has the power was the principle at stake. But the issue which triggered it was slavery. Slavery had been a controversy in America ever since the Revolution. The Constitution was worded to please both sides of the slavery issue. George Mason of Virginia had argued vociferously to include in the Constitution a ban on the slave trade, even if he was a bit more reluctant to ban slavery altogether. He warned that Providence will bring judgment on the nation for this. And in the end, the framers of the Constitution allowed slavery and the slave trade, at least for a little while, because the southern states wouldn't ratify it if they didn't. It was more important to form a union of these states and than to solve every disagreement. So let's deal with this slavery thing later, okay? Sure. When Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860, he was elected as a moderate Republican. While he personally hated slavery, he wasn't going to abolish slavery in the southern states. The problem with Lincoln was that he did want to stop slavery from spreading west as the nation grew larger and larger. And the slave states weren't stupid. There were only seven states with slavery, and as the country added more and more states without slavery, then eventually they would be in the minority in Congress. So they had to act if they wanted to save slavery, and that meant war. Now, we talked last time about how the Methodist Church split in two over the issue of slavery, but they weren't the only ones. The Baptists and Presbyterians did too. Now, there was no danger of Adventists doing this because Adventists all lived in the North. 
As a result, Adventists were basically unanimous abolitionists. They detested slavery. If they had to pick a side, they were going with the North all the way. James White decried the Southern cause as, quote, the most hellish rebellion since that of Satan and his angels, end quote. So, yeah, James is not really on the fence on that one. But this put Adventists in an impossible situation because the Adventist church's natural instinct was that fighting in war was wrong. They felt that the moral value of the North's victory more passionately than Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln, as I said, just wanted to keep the country together, at least at first. And Adventists like Ellen White took shots at him for this. She was worried that the war would be won without slavery being abolished. And really, what was the point of that? I cannot emphasize enough that there were a lot of people in the North who didn't want to free the slaves. Riots opposing the war broke out in New York City because workers were told that if slaves were emancipated, then they'll have to compete with four million more people for their jobs. The ironic part of these riots is that many of the rioters themselves were immigrants who didn't want to compete with native-born African Americans for American jobs. I mean, how dare those people who were born here take the jobs that we traveled across the world to get? Anyways, everywhere, the war was changing the landscape, even far behind the front lines. Various preachers had a hard time pitching tents to preach because people were just too distracted by the war. The open fields they preferred were often places where soldiers were drilling. Sometimes their tents were even taken over to hold war rallies. J.H. Wagner and B.F. Snook were arrested in Iowa under martial law until they could prove that they lived in the North, just in case they might be Southern spies. But the manufacturing economy was doing quite well, and despite all of this, this was the war that sent John D. Rockefeller on the path to becoming the richest man in the world, after all. Now, after the official call for 400,000 troops at the beginning of the war proved laughably insufficient, Lincoln was increasingly asking for more and more soldiers. After the most enthusiastic patriots volunteered, the army started offering bonuses to soldiers to sign on, first $25 and then eventually $100. Adventists weren't stupid. They knew, as most people did, that if the army couldn't get enough volunteers, they would just simply start drafting people. And the thought of a draft terrified Adventists. Many of them thought war to be wrong as a Christian, but they also feared resisting the draft and being mocked in the papers as traitors and southern sympathizers when, as we know, they could preach abolition as good as anyone. Many of these guys lived through the public ridicule heaped upon them after the Great Disappointment in 1844. But the stakes now were higher. If they didn't handle this right, they would be known for decades as a church of traitors, of pro-Southern sympathizers, or cowards. It's not easy winning people to the truth when you have these labels hanging over your head. It would be nearly impossible. I mean, do our American listeners remember the feeling after Pearl Harbor or 9-11? Only one congressperson voted against the war in Afghanistan, and only then because she didn't like the way it was written. When there's a fever of war and you're a new church, it's dangerous to stand against the current. Oh, not to mention the fact that if they refused to fight, these Adventists were, by their absence, giving slavery that much a greater chance to survive. So the whole rationale for organization, for systematic benevolence, for state conferences, for the general conference, for all of this, was that it helped the church's mission. They would do anything for the mission, as long as it didn't compromise their faith. 
Well, now it seems like they had to choose between hurting the mission and compromising their faith. If they didn't fight, they were committing something close to institutional suicide. If they did fight, they'd be hypocrites, as James White knew. How could they say, keep the fourth commandment, if they simultaneously broke the sixth, do not kill? Actually, they'd probably break both because it's hard to keep the Sabbath in war. This last bit is so profoundly ingrained in the Adventist psyche that it still haunts us. There's a famous story of a German Adventist drafted by Hitler in World War II and made to serve on the Eastern Front. The author of his story, a relative, goes out of her way to make two things very clear all throughout the story. This Adventist did not carry a gun, and he was always finding ways to keep from breaking the Sabbath. It's as if the author had to say, no, 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 and this time it was okay, he was a good guy. Just like with organization, James White set out in the summer of 1862 to spark a very passionate discussion about how Adventists should handle the war. He began with these words, quote, For the past ten years, the review has taught that the United States of America were a subject of prophecy, and that slavery is pointed out in the prophetic word as the darkest and most damning sin upon this nation. It has taught that heaven has wrath in store for the nation, which it would drink to the very dregs as due punishment for the sin of slavery. End quote. James then noted that the review was banned in the slave states before confessing that, quote, those of our people who voted at all at the last presidential election to a man voted for Abraham Lincoln. We know of not one man among Seventh-day Adventists who has the least sympathy for secession, end quote. But James White went too far, at least in the minds of many of his readers, when he stated that should the president call a draft, Adventists should go along with it. To refuse the draft could result in execution, which James apparently thought a stupid course to take. James also opposed dodging the draft. He wrote, quote, Those who are loyal to the government of heaven, true to the Constitution and the laws of the ruler of the universe, are the last men to sneak off to Canada or to Europe, or to stand trembling in their shoes for fear of a military draft. End quote. But if they make you fight, he argued, then the guilt rests on the government, not on you. We might call this James's moderate position. Fighting was wrong, but if you're drafted, it does more harm than good to resist and get yourself shot. So you might as well go along with it guilt-free. And just like that, a smaller war in the Adventist world erupted. J.H. Wagner wrote in support of James's moderate position, though he confessed he had been shocked by James's original article. He went after those who saw glory in being martyrs, killed for resisting the draft. Wagner wrote that, quote, One freak of fanaticism at such a time as this would work more injury to the cause than could be undone in years, end quote. Wagner presented a level-headed case. The draft isn't wicked. It's not being used to go attack and plunder some innocent people, but to defend the legitimate government, which is one of the best in the world, might he add. And he even hints at the eternal dilemma when it comes to these things. How can we ask other people to go fight and die to protect our privileges? Wagner then said something very interesting. Noting that the state legislature of Iowa passed a bill that allowed a conscientious objector to pay a $100 fine rather than fight, Wagner was incensed. 
Some people saw such a law as an answer to prayer, but he didn't, he said. Quote, I would sooner suffer the result of a draft and trust in God for the consequences than to accept a $100 valuation of my conscience, end quote. He then echoed a very popular criticism of such laws. The poor, he says, which are the great mass of our brethren, whose consciences are as tender and as valuable as those of the rich, stand precisely where they would stand without it, end quote. In other words, such a law only means the rich can buy their way out of service while the poor had the fight. Joseph Clark was not on James' side, however. Clark had been a regular writer to the Review for many years now, and when he weighed in, he really weighed in. I wish I could read the whole article to you, because it's about as righteously pro-war as you can get. To be fair to Clark, he realizes he might be going too far in support of the war, and says he'll abide with whatever decision the church makes. That said, here's what he writes. Quote, I have been very anxious to know duty respecting the war, not so much for fear of the draft, as because I want to see treason receive its just deserts. End quote. And then Clark goes on to mention all of these heroes from the Bible who, for lack of a better word, went to war for God and knocked some heads around. Here's what he wrote. Quote, Often as I have thought of the baseness of slave treason and how it hinders the message from moving forward, how it instigates Kansas raids, how it prompts the fugitive slave laws and the Dred Scott decisions, how it separates families, how it does violence to innocence, how it tars and feathers and hangs innocent travelers, peddlers, schoolmasters, etc., how it makes the soil barren and the government corrupt, how it tantalizes, how it tyrannizes, how it traduces, in fact, how it sums up in itself every horrid crime, how it brands every good patriot as a fanatic. I have wished sometimes that I had it where Joab had Absalom, and almost fancied that the time might come when a regiment of Sabbath keepers would strike this rebellion a staggering blow. In the strength of him who has always helped his valiant people when they kept his statutes, we at the North have sinned by our cowardly submission to the monster in years past, and must meet our punishment. After that, let Southern traders tremble. End quote. And Joseph Clark wasn't done yet. In the very same issue of the review, he penned yet another article. Quote, Shall the Christian who is so greatly indebted to the government for its sheltering care in the past, shall the Christian forsake his country in her hour of peril? Think of it. Is it murder to hang or shoot a traitor? No, no. Does not the army of Mr. Lincoln stand between us and Pharaoh's? When our government enlists itself in a bad cause and sets itself in opposition to truth and justice, then it will be time to talk of disobedience. But while engaged in a crusade against traitors, let us act like good and true men, render strict obedience to the laws. End quote. Now, on the nonviolent side of the issue was Henry Carver, who argued that it was never appropriate for God's people to take up arms against other people. Well, what about the Old Testament, right, where God tells people to, to kill other people? Well, Carver believed that killing was only permissible in the Old Testament when God was at the head of the nation. Otherwise, Christians shouldn't be killing other people. One Ohio Adventist wrote to the Review in the midst of this debate that he thought it was wrong to fight at first, but then saw some of the articles in the Review which somehow reassured him that fighting was okay. So he wrote from his training camp asking for prayers. 
It's not at all clear whether he was drafted by his state or whether he volunteered. Even though James was taking a moderate position, neither he nor Carver thought it was right to voluntarily fight. Even Clark was only making a case for this war, not every war. But this thing had to be solved, and fast. Apparently, some Iowa Adventists took measures into their own hands and petitioned the legislature for some sort of exemption from the war. We're not really sure what they asked for, but they were refused, and this was not a promising first step. In truth, the leaders of the church were more worried about fanatical non-combatant Adventists than ones who wanted to fight. They were afraid that these guys would go so far in standing up for principle that the public would mistake the church for a pro-slavery, pro-South institution, so this needed to be handled carefully. Hope came in January 1863, when the review gave notice that in a few days, Ellen White would be releasing one of her prophetic testimonies that would explain what God wanted Adventists to do. Ellen dealt first with her husband's original article, that moderate position, the one that sparked all the controversy, and said that it was the best idea they had at the time, but basically James was wrong to suggest a middle road when principle was at stake. Now on the larger issue, Ellen White felt that God was against any Adventists fighting in the war. No matter how right the North seemed, it was still a choice between evils. She wholeheartedly rejected any association between the North and those godly warriors of the Bible. She absolutely refused to allow people to imagine this as a fight between good and evil. The North was corrupt, filled with sympathizers to the South, she said. And by this, she seems to be taking aim at the fact that, as we've said, for a huge number of Northerners, they couldn't care less about slavery. Maybe they didn't want it to spread to other states, but they were fighting mainly to preserve the Union. And Adventists couldn't fight to preserve a country with slavery. Interestingly, Ellen White didn't shrug off the principle of fighting completely. She praised Revolutionary War generals for fighting with unity and for valuing the lives of their soldiers, in contrast to many Civil War commanders, whom she said were little better than slave masters. She didn't repeat the argument that all killing was bad. She was evaluating the Northern cause, and while she supported the goal of ending slavery, concluded that joining in the war would require Adventists to compromise their essential beliefs. Now, this is as good a point as any to clarify that I'm going to use non-combatancy and not pacifism to describe the Adventist position. Jehovah's Witnesses, knock-knock, refused to support warfare in any way, even as medics. Adventists never really went that far, and so their legacy with war is a little bit muddier. For one perspective, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the largest Christian peace church in the world. I mean, Desmond Doss, an American Adventist in World War II, ended up receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor, and he never fired his weapon in combat. On the other hand, Adventists aren't strictly pacifist in this regard. They will join a military in non-combatant roles. So even though it's a bit of a mouthful to say, I'm going to stick with calling Adventists a non-combatant church rather than a strictly pacifist one. Besides, it's kind of hard to call yourself a pacifist when you're actually raising money to pay for other people to go to war instead of you. Now, in early March 1863, it happened. Congress required everyone to register for the draft. Thankfully, you could pay a $300 commutation fee, which the church was happy to try and pay. I say try 
because I'm sure I don't need to remind you that $300 back then was a lot of money, essentially a year's salary for a number of people. That's a huge sum of money, and Adventists had to know that they could only buy so many of their compatriots out of the draft, but it gave them some breathing room to work out other solutions. In July 1864, a year and a few months later, Congress restricted the $300 fee only to those conscientious objectors who were members of a recognized peace church, that is, a church known to shun violence, like Quakers or Mennonites. So that just really introduced the need to be registered or recognized as a peace church. While the draft cast a very dark shadow over the church, they were really anticipating it for years and dreading it for years, the reality of its arrival was both worse and better than what they were expecting. In July of 1863, 292,000 names were drawn for the draft. 40,000 of those men failed to report for duty, which is technically considered desertion, and it's what the Adventists were worried about. Of those who did show up, 160,000 received exemptions. That left 90,000 people, and of that amount, 52,000 chose to pay the $300 rather than serve. Another 26,000 found someone else to take their place in what made this seem like the Hunger Games. I volunteer. So basically, of the nearly 300,000 people drafted in July 1863, less than 10,000 people reported for active duty, passed the physical, and served. We can zoom out a bit more and look at it this way. There were four different drafts which called up the 776,000 people to serve in the Northern Army. Of those 776,000 men, only 46,000 actually saw combat, which is basically like 6% of those drafted. Of course, Adventists weren't going to run Canada, and finding someone else to fight for you seemed a disingenuous way of keeping your convictions. Before paying $300 fees drained the church, J.N. Andrews was dispatched to meet with the Provost Marshal of the United States, that would be James B. Fry. Andrews informed Fry that Adventists were, quote, a people unanimously loyal and anti-slavery, who because of their views on the Ten Commandments and of the teaching of the New Testament cannot engage in bloodshed, end quote. Thankfully, Fry was persuaded and allowed them to either pay the $300 or to serve as a non-combatant, usually in a field hospital. Andrews assured General Fry that Avenus had always been a peace-loving people. He was very clearly stretching that definition just a little bit. Certainly they had inclined themselves towards peace. Joseph Bates waxed eloquent condemning the Mexican-American War in the late 1840s, for instance. But Joseph Clark's thirst for righteous battle makes it clear that unity on this point hadn't really been an issue. But to punctuate this conviction... Several Adventists who had volunteered for the fight were kicked out in 1865. You know, because if the government heard that a number of Adventists were volunteering for war, it could have ruined the whole protection as a peace church they had fought so hard to get. Adventists still suffered a lot of problems on the local level. Various state and military authorities still gave them a hard time, either unaware of their exemption or, more likely, just ignorant over the very existence of this church that suddenly came out of nowhere and claimed they couldn't fight. There was probably also a fair amount of personal disdain for these cowards, as they may have seen them. Why were Avenus naturally averse to war, you ask? I want to suggest several reasons. 
James White had been a minister in the Christian Connection, as you know, and many of their churches seem to have been peace churches. But perhaps it's also due to the fact that Seventh-day Adventists were aware of the need to take the Ten Commandments seriously, and to them that meant not going to war. There are, I will add, also other ways of understanding the Sixth Commandment, but we won't get into that. William Miller was not very keen on Christians going to war either. It's important to note that the church was largely non-combatant to begin with, for reasons that had nothing to do with Ellen White's visions. When Ellen White shared her testimony in January 1863, she wasn't changing the course of the church, but largely confirming it, which is how she worked a lot of times. The commitment to non-combatancy in the Civil War was something decided in the moment by a few leading members and not by the church in a general conference session. So that was corrected in 1865, when the general conference voted the following statement, quote, We decline all participation in acts of war and bloodshed as being inconsistent with the duties enjoined upon us by our divine master toward our enemies and toward all mankind. End quote. So there you have it. Before we go, we have to say goodbye to two people, though. First up, Moses Hull. Moses had been mentioned from time to time as a supporting player, often helping John Loughborough with his tent preaching. Moses himself started preaching in 1857 and lasted until 1863, when after he successfully debated a spiritualist, someone who is communicating with the spirits and that sort of thing, he ended up switching to their side. Hull lived many, many more years as a spiritualist. He eventually divorced his wife and ran for Congress, because that seems about right. The second person we need to say goodbye to is Henry White. Henry, it seems, caught pneumonia, and as it dawned on the doctors and on the Whites that there was nothing that could be done, he said his goodbyes. Henry made his mother promise him that he would be buried next to his little brother in Battle Creek. She did. James tried to assure Henry that God would make this right someday, somehow, and Henry nodded. Yes, he will. Henry urged his parents not to be too sad. He had escaped the draft, after all. After kissing his parents, his friends and neighbors, he pointed up to heaven and said, Heaven is sweet, and breathed his last. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, 
We don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.